Leah, I have a confession to make to you. What is it? The confession is Anne Rand is a popular author. I mean, it might not be someone I'm drawn to, but like Anne Rand has been a darling of libertarians and the right for a mm-hmm. long time. And just mm-hmm. by way of being an educated person ahead of the 2024 election, which is going to be a peaceful and beautiful time of bonding for humanity. Knock on wood. I have thought to myself, why shouldn't I be reading Anne Rand? But I just never have until now. Have you read Anne Rand, by the way? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm public school educated. You are listening to Weird Religion. Hey, I'm Brian Doak. And I'm Leah Payne. This is Weird Religion. This- what? We've now been doing this every episode and we have to just keep it. Like, why? What? We used to be good at this and now we're not good at it. This is a good time to talk about going backwards. (laughs) This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. It is. It is. Today on the show, we have a special guest. I'm so excited about this. This is Dr. David Dalt, who is assistant professor of Christian spirituality at Loyola University, Chicago, and extraordinary host of the podcast and radio show, Things Not Seen. Dr. David Dalt, welcome. Dr. Leah Payne and Dr. Brian Doak, I am so happy to be with you again. One of my favorite shows, I can't say enough good things about weird religion. Thank you for doing what you do. What's life like in Chicago these days? What's the religious scene in Chicago? Just characterize it. We just had the Parliament of World Religions uh, a couple weeks ago here in Chicago, which was a week-long international festival of every religion that you could imagine. Really? And Oh, yeah. And this this happens, I think, every two years at various places around the world. But the Parliament of World Religions was, was started a little over a century ago in Chicago at the World's Fair. And so it comes back every every few rounds to Chicago. And so it just ended here. So I'd say that uh, religious life in Chicago right now is vibrant. I love that. I love that. Um, I've seen pictures of the original one. Um, and so that must have been Um, I would love to do a little compare contrast in terms of just how the conception of what constitutes a religion and religious people has changed over time. How fun. Did you go? Were you able to participate in any of it? Several of my colleagues from the Institute of Pastoral Studies were there. I was not able to for various reasons. Just it's getting ready for the semester. Uh, A lot of busyness happens. And so I just wasn't able to get away and go. But uh, they said that it was a a kind of wonderful chaos. Just a lot of people there and a lot of vibrancy. So when there was a year and this was I don't even know what year it was, David, you may know it might have been like 2015. 12 or 14 or 13 when the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion met in Chicago for the first and only time during my time in the discipline. And it was universally known as a disaster because A, the weather was freezing cold the week before Thanksgiving. I remember that. I remember that. And also I missed, I wanted to stay to see um, who was becoming President Obama. So this would have been 2007, 2008 when it happened. But why was it a disaster? Because it was just cold? Well, the other disaster was that the conference, this is really interesting to listeners, so just beware. The conference bus system was kind of like sort of mismatched, taking people from where the conference was to where the hotel was. So it was like a lot of cranky scholars who, despite their, there were, you know, many of us are world travelers, somehow become very 
uh, unable to navigate simple transportation issues, which became a problem for people. Were you at this? Were you at that conference, David? Do you remember that one? I, I believe I was. And I do recall this was right before I moved to Chicago, if I recall correctly. And so, yeah, I I am aware of all of the problems that you said, <laughs> including the problems of getting into and out of the city because of the weather. And it's just Chicago. Chicago is its own thing. I mean, you got to just, you got to embrace it. Um, I went to Chicago partly on my honeymoon, so I have really wonderful memories of it. But look, let's get down to it, people. We have a secret reason for Dr. Dalt being here, and it is not even to talk about Chicago, although we could continue. The reason is because, call back to the Ayn Rand intro, David, I'm, I'm sort of, we're, we're, we're at least vaguely aware that you, in terms of your own family, in terms of your own upbringing, in terms of your own religious identity, have some kind of connection to Anne Rand. And given the fact that I'm definitely not familiar, although I just read my first Anne Rand book one week ago, Leah did maybe in high school. Um, despite this, we just we're not we don't really understand the Anne Randian universe and all that it entails. And I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a story of literally any length that you choose. If you're okay with us just going back and forth, just tell us the story of what, what your connection is to Anne Rand. Well, so I was not raised in a religious household. Uh, my mother was a very uh, vocal atheist and my father, although he was a religious person, uh, he had been raised Catholic and then at 18 or 19 had converted to Judaism. Uh, he did not, uh, really talk about his religion at all when I was a child and my parents divorced when I was eight or nine years old. So it was a, I mean, you know, it was a rocky relationship the whole time that they were in the, the house together. The, but the, the, the sort of belief system that had the greatest hold on my mother and the one that she was most vocal about was a philosophy that had been uh, created by, and there's dispute about how best to pronounce the name here, Anne or Ein. Oh, yes. Ran. Okay. I was saying Anne, but is it Ein? Well, uh, so uh, again, I'm not going to tell you for sure either one because <laughs> I've heard it both ways okay, okay. by, and this gets into the, the kind of feudalism about it, mm. but uh, a philosophy created by Rand called objectivism. Mm. And this was sort of a, a philosophy that was loosely based on Aristotelian principles of identity. So, you know, existence exists and that, you know, there's a positive way of identifying that which exists versus that which does not exist. And, you know, just from the term objectivism itself, there is a real sense for those that follow Ayn Rand that reality is a kind of simple thing that presents itself to you, and it is only by a kind of muddling of our consciousness that we we become deluded by um, other kind of ways of living in the world. And so I was raised with this uh, as probably the most coherent moral system available to me in my household mm. to the extent that um you know my mother was not simply a a person who read Ayn Rand's books but she was a person who contributed to i mean at various points it was known as the Ayn Rand Institute it was known as the Objectivist Institute it was known as the Nathaniel Brandon Institute she contributed money she got the newsletter uh the top shelf of our bookshelves was like a 40 volume long play record set collection of Nathaniel Brandon's uh uh lectures on objectivism uh, Leonard Peikoff and other Nathaniel Brandon and other thinkers were sort of part of the intellectual milieu of our home. And when I was growing up, you know, just the other day, I took 
our children out to the bookstore to buy young adult novels and you know they're they're interested in kind of what they want to read when i was you know seven eight nine ten years old and i would go to my mother and say you know i've run out of books to read she'd hand me an ayn rand book <laughs> and so one of the first books that she recommended to me was the one that you mentioned at the top of the show anthem but by the time i was in seventh grade i had read the major novels as well the fountainhead and atlas shrugged by the time i had gotten out of high school and into college i had read all of the philosophical papers as well and so i mean i am a person who was steeped in this stuff i will say i am not an objectivist i do not cohere to the objectivist mindset or lifestyle but i do feel because of the way that i was raised relatively conversant in the main ideas wow i want to i want to ask what that the the place that ayn rand had um and i guess i guess i had always said it ayn but i anyway um i want to ask the place that she as a person held in your household being raised in that tradition what how was was rand seen um just as a kid i mean so you i i guess let me let me put it this way i i had a friend in college uh who when she got married uh she got married in the quaker tradition but she had been raised in the presbyterian tradition and uh, her father handed her a book of john calvin saying don't forget where you've come from uh, i would suggest that maybe for my household ayn rand held a similar sort of totemic uh location in terms of discourse in terms of how again i i really think that kind of like a moral lighthouse like this is how you think about human relationships this is how you think about value this is how you think about uh the way in which uh you should uh kind of deploy your behavior that was really referenced back in a lot of ways to again the the kind of narrative morality that exists in rand's books and we can get into what that is and kind of what the key points of that are but though it was never really named that way like like we didn't have like a, a portrait of ayn rand that we like bowed to every morning that's not what I'm, <laughs> i don't want to give any but the centrality of rand as an intellectual figure was palpable in my household again because you could look around and and there was so much of our our personal library in the home was rand's books or were lectures or were were topics of discussion yeah, I mean, this prompts, I think, the next natural question, which is having been raised in that environment and knowing what you know, David, like, could you sketch out for us what is objectivism with maybe even, I also was wondering as you talked, I was getting very curious about like in the life of, of a little boy even, like what does it look like in practice, like in, uh, on a moral or even a non-religious kind of question, if you'd call it a moral question, like how would it look in practice? But what what are what, what, what's your way of doing that overview? So the, the Cliff's Notes... Uh, it comes from a title of one of Rand's nonfiction writings, and that's a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Okay, uh, there okay. is basic. So, so Rand sort of took the worst parts of Nietzsche. I, I guess we could say so <laughs> Nietzsche had this kind of notion of romantic 
Schopenhauerianism and the kind of tragic sense of the world and the the sense that certain people were destined to be heroic and even uh, supermen in certain ways. And again, these are all caricatures of Nietzsche. Nietzsche has a lot more nuance to all this. But Rand really sort of took those basic ideas and began to apply them. And she applied them, first of all, narratively. So she wrote stories about these heroic figures who were heroic precisely because they were egonic, because they were uh, they were walking manifestations of of, of, a kind of supremacy of the ego, a kind of a kind of supremacy of um, my self-interest is going to be the the litmus test, the standard, the yardstick for all propriety of human behavior. And interestingly enough, uh, just to take a quick sidebar, if we go back to the period of time when Karl Marx was hanging out, you know, in Berlin with Ludwig Feuerbach and a couple of other folks, there was a contemporary of Marx, a kind of foil of Marx in some of his writings, a guy by the name of Max Stirner, who was a kind of uber libertarian, who wrote a book called The Ego and Its Own. And and so if, if you think about the kind of great boogeyman in Rand's thinking, which is the kind of Marxist collectivist, we can actually trace it back to Marx himself going to toe-to-toe with Max Stirner, Max saying the only thing that really exists is my will and my desire to conquer, and Marx saying we need to have some sort of collective notion of how humanity can better itself, and that tension is written forward into what's going on with Ayn Rand. She railed against the ideas of collectivism, and for her that was any sort of thing that would pull you away from your egonic self-interest, the self-interest of your own betterment. And she assumed that everyone should be sort of going after their own self-interest and that that kind of market force of ego against ego would always bring about kind of the natural best because the cream would rise to the top. Wow. Now, again, we can go into a lot more detail here and particularly around the ideas of collectivism. And we can also talk about the fact that while Rand was doing this, she was name checking about a bunch of philosophers that she failed to adequately read. And so, I mean, so she she styles herself as a philosopher and those that follow her think that. If you've ever encountered the kind of Theo bros online in social media who want to use logical fallacies against you and, and they, they try and put themselves forward as I'm just being logical, they are the heirs apparent to the kind of uh, way that I was raised, the kind of objectivist sort of way of saying, well, we can know using rules of logic and we can know using just, you know, the, the practical common sense how to navigate and and get to the right moral behavior and the right moral behavior is always if i can take it from you i deserve to take it from you i wonder if we could because i am sensing that there's there's a dual arc story wise here in our conversation which is we we started this episode talking about brian reading anthem for the first time now we've all we've all read anthem and it is a story of a man, a young man who becomes disillusioned with um, the the moral and political philosophy of his time. And I think, I don't want to, spoiler alert, but I think, David, you, Dr. Dalt, you will also tell us a story of a young man who came to see the world a, di- a little bit differently. And so I wonder, Brian, since you probably read it the most recently, could you tell us a little bit, because Rand, I think, it, where Rand really succeeds is as a storyteller. 
Um, there, there's some pretty, pretty engrossing stories that that Rand has told over the years. Could you summarize the quest of Anthem for us, or just the the storyline of Anthem for those readers who are not familiar with yeah, it? Yeah, and I think it's old enough that we we are off the hook for spoiler alerts on this um, because we got to talk about <laughs> right. it. But there's an individual. It's nice and short too. There's an individual. Snappy. I was gonna say an individual. He's not an individual. He's a he's a we. He's a. He, they are a collective. The, the use of the pronouns actually is very. Um, jarring in the book because at first I was like, sometimes I thought the the narrator was talking about only like a, a multitude of people, but it was actually only what turns out to be himself, themselves actually named equality two seven two five two one, and this is a clearly dystopian world. I mean, there's a very clear list. I was writing in my in the in, in the inside of my book, my copy, the things that are clearly forbidden: individuality, preferences being different from the group, being too tall. I love that reference to the height, being too smart, excellence. And the council of vocations, which in this dystopian world is gonna decide everyone's vocation. Equality wants to wants to be a scholar, who doesn't? But in fact, um, equality gets condemned in, in equality's mind to being a street sweeper. And this is a disaster. So equality um, finds a way to find like this cave where they go to to create things and think and try to be a scholar. And they end up in reinventing, quote unquote, a light bulb, a technology of the past world. And they end up meeting a person they call the golden one um, who has some other you know name like this, Liberty 5300, uh, 53000, excuse me. And the two of them end up in, in, now I'm skipping some parts here because I feel like this summary is going on a long time, but they, they end up basically breaking out of their world, traveling through a forest, finding a like a mountaintop villa where they then become Nietzschean, Ubermenschen and women in the sense they, they take on the title I for the first time. They sort of enter, I guess, kind of like a common law marriage, you could say, and they have strapping sons and they are now going to live the world the way it should be lived, which is namely reading by themselves um, in this mountaintop villa, just reading and thinking. Um, but the idea that the individual is is God, literally by that terminology in the book, is kind of like the apex conclusion of the book. And the book ends on a rather kind of stunning, stark note on this front. But David, how, how that that's my summary. David, how was that as a summary? Something something that, missed there? That's really good, and I think you've gotten the basics of it. And the 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 thing that that rings out, the only thing that I would add to that that rings out in the book is the the oppressive power of the collective to any time that there is any individuality or any time that there is any expression of interest in the world, like in science or anything like that, the collective exists to basically stamp it out. Yes. And so you could you could read into that collective the church. You could read into that collective uh, a sort of idea that rand introduces in later books the moochers mm. uh the, the the takers uh those that that are parasitic on the uh creative power of the individual like there's a lot of ways that you can read this but you've got the basics of it absolutely i it's it's hard not to read this at first for the first three-fourths of it i was reading it like a very I thought it was well-written, and but I was reading it kind of like a very standard dystopian novel. And I was into it, and I thought it was fascinating. The last part was where it sort of, I won't say lost me, because I remain kind of enchanted by this ending to the book. But I mean, this switch and this, I mean, the, the absolute black and white clarity of, of Rand's vision, Ayn Rand's vision. I'm not going to say Ayn. We have lots of pronunciation battles on the show, lots of pronunciation slams. So this is perfect. Like every episode we have a pronunciation problem. So this is great. I'm going to embrace it. 
and Ayn Rand, I just the clear, the, like the moral clarity of it, it becomes very didactic at the end. I mean, is that, do all of her books do this? Are they all meant to like teach you in such a way? Having only read this one, I ask you, David, is this- Oh, is I'm delighted by this because there, it's a running joke that when you get to the Fountainhead, when you get to uh, Atlas Shrugged, at certain points, and depending on the edition that you have, it'll either be a 25 or it'll be a 40-page speech where the main <laughs> character will be in court or will have some other kind of public point where they will basically go on. And it's like John's gospel, nice. right? Yep. Or like uh, the, 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 the mission statement is laid out and it's just there for the readers. And yes, it is as didactic as you could imagine. Wow. I... <sighs> When you were, I want to, I want to flash back and forth from your childhood to the book to like, what does this mean in the world today? Like, are there people actively following this? So those are the threads here in our last 10 minutes that maybe we could think about, but I want to flash back even David to your childhood. Was there a point at which you felt like this, this ultra egonic, I love that word. I'm going to use that word every day now, this ultra ego centered self selfish. It'll all work out if we pursue our own interests, laissez faire, capitalist, Adam Smith, wealth of nations, made a personality issue. Did you ever, did you believe it? Did you feel like you believed it? And did you have to like convert out of it, assuming that you did? Or was there an element of that, that, yeah, d did you believe it? There's a much longer story here, but let me say, first of all, yes, I did live in a very self-interested kind of egocentric fashion, uh, much to my detriment. And, you know, you combine that with a childhood of abuse and suddenly you have uh, a kind of uh, recipe for a really horrendous moral monstrosity wow. happening. And so, you know, my my early relationships with other people were oftentimes very instrumental and were oftentimes driven by what can I get out of this mm -hmm. and, and how can I turn this towards my pleasure and my benefit? And it doesn't really matter what your pleasure or benefit is in it. Um, and so a lot of my movement from that to Christianity was a kind of rethinking and kind of almost deprogramming those reflexes, because again, they weren't conscious. They were just like, th it was the water that we swam in, in my household. And so, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not trying to like disparage my mother or, or anything like that in, in terms of, I think she was doing the best that she could given the hand that she was dealt. And she grabbed onto something that made her feel like she could have some control in the world. And the, the thing about Rand is that the control just gets turned up to 11 with sometimes disastrous consequences to those that are around you. But I, I still and it, there there's uh, a couple of other thinkers out in the podcast world. I'm thinking especially of Matthew Sitman from the Know Your Enemy podcast. He's a friend of mine. And occasionally we sit, we sit down and we compare notes about how we were raised because we were both raised in this kind of hedonistic uh but very moral and uh it, th this is the thing it's like it's hedonism but it's like hedonism presented as if it's the most moral thing that you can do and this touches on something that you mentioned at the beginning of your question do people still believe this yeah so paul ryan uh the former congressman he gave uh copies of Atlas Shrugged to all of his staff members because he wanted to make sure that they were aware of this philosophy. This man is a Roman Catholic, but he somehow found a way to square the circle of taking this incredibly ego-centered philosophy 
as if it could be uh, in some way rationally equated with the tenets of Christianity. And there are a lot of people out there that try and do that. And there's an interesting sidebar on that that we can get into if you wish, because Ayn Rand actually hated libertarians, even <laughs> though the libertarians love Ayn Rand. Wow. There's something I don't I don't know enough about Rand to even say if this is a thing, but can we call it Randian? Like, what do we call Ayn Rand? We call it objectivist. Like they would call okay, objectivist. objectivists or objectivism. There's something super. OK, then I'll say there's something super objectivist about the misappropriations of Rand. You know what? It, it kind of reminds me of um, I remember the first time I read um, the writings of L. Ron Hubbard, the um, the founding father and also um novelist who created Scientology and Hubbard I mean this this strikes me all as a very maybe not uniquely American but distinctly American thing where um these uh, Hubbard does a kind of a hop skip and a jump over the history of moral philosophy and gets most of them very wrong like does not understand it's it's clear that Hubbard does not understand um, utilitarianism or Kantianism or things like that, and then seeks to displace these things that he does not understand with another, you know, moral lens. And it, when I hear, I I remember probably ten years ago when I started hearing in the maybe maybe I was just hearing it late, but in right wing circles. Rand really had a moment, um, it seems like, and I don't know if it's she's as popular now in, in those circles, but I remember thinking this feels very on brand because it's people who have not like they're they're, they're misusing <laughs> um, her moral philosophy, but Rand did it, too. So it somehow seems like a kind of meta meta application of this theory what do you think about that well you, you mentioned that rand maybe had a moment in the past and maybe has waned a little bit but the the ripples of that moment still persevere so now the followers of jordan peterson have picked up some of the randian misreadings and it comes out particularly in one figure that you mentioned emmanuel kant and so if you go back to rand's philosophical writings there's a point where she says emmanuel kant was the place where it all went wrong i'm paraphrasing but emmanuel kant was the one who basically opened opened up this collectivist Pandora's box. And if we really want to get back to something that is better than Kant, then we need to understand that the that the most important thing is to treat people as ends and not as means to ends, which any careful reader of Kant will know is the second formulation of Kant's categorical imperative. So she's using Kant against Kant. Uh, and th this is this is typical of of what's happening. But you but what what you find is these misreadings of Kant, these very simplistic caricatures of Kant are still showing up in places like the the followers of Jordan Peterson. They will use these shorthands as ways to sort of kind of rail against postmodernism or rail against socialism or cultural Marxism, however it's it's talked about. But it's the same kind of slipshod scholarship that was pioneered, if you will, by Rand. David, I wonder, you know, yeah, go ahead, Leah, go ahead, go for well, it. Well, I was just going to say, because um, uh, what, uh, the other day, a quote from I think it's correctly attributed to Flannery O'Connor, um, a an incandescent um, writer, in my humble opinion, um, who apparently felt very similarly to to um, you, David, about Rand. And I, I just want to read this 
this quote and see if it rings true for you. Um, apparently, this is O'Connor writing um, to her friend, another playwright. I hope you don't have friends who recommend Ayn Rand to you. The fiction of Ayn Rand is as low as you can get regarding fiction. I hope you picked it up off the floor of the subway and threw it in the nearest garbage pail. Response, please, Dr. <laughs> Dalt. Okay. I, th I think The Fountainhead is a good book. I think that it is it 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 functions as a novel and in terms of a piece of art it's it's okay. I think that Atlas Shrugged is that's a good description. And I say for the most part um again, you know, Richard Rorty said that we should take our our kind of moral philosophy from literature. This is not the literature you should be taking your moral philosophy from. <laughs> wow. In our last Two minutes here, David, I want to ask you a, a, a big question that could explode out. So I'm asking you to be almost like a talking head on the news here and talk us out in the last uh, 90 seconds here. But I, I want to lean on your identity as an, as an assistant professor of Christian spirituality to ask particularly this question. I mean, and you, you referenced it with the Jordan Peterson thing and so on, this idea that people have taken ideas from Rand and sort of blended them in a way or tried to connect them to a certain kind of Christianity. I guess I wonder in, in your own personal opinion, how well that combination works. It doesn't. <laughs> it like, but that's it. It, 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 it <laughs> has. <laughs> so, uh, to 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 put a little bit of a finer point on it. So, I mean, I think that it works. There, there is a kind of um, hucksterism that has always been in the DNA of American Christianity. There's always been the attempt to tr to try and uh, turn the teachings of Christ towards the accumulation of casual access to violence and the making of money. And in that sense, Ayn Rand works incredibly well mm. uh, in terms of actually getting at the Sermon on the Mount or Matthew 25. Uh, Rand was very, very clear that she was absolutely and adamantly against any of those sorts of moral tenets. The, the care for others, the good Samaritan, any of these stories, she would have said absolutely not. Wow. I, I have that feeling we often have where this conversation could be quadruple its length and more, but we'll have to close it here. David Dalt, Assistant Professor of Christian Spirituality at Loyola University Chicago and host of the Things Not Seen podcast and radio show. Thank you, David, so much for being with us. What a joy, Dr. Dalt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both so much. This has been a production of Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Follow us into the ocean. Allow your heart to blossom. Retreat into the gorgeous and haunted forests of your mind. Find us there. <laughs>